This is the After Hours Director Spotlight, presented by Amro Music. It's the podcast where we chat with music educators to celebrate the joy of teaching music and learn about strategies for success. In this episode, Nick Averwater continues his conversation with Randall Standridge, a former public school band director and a very busy and widely published composer, running his own production company, Randall Standridge Music. This week, we'll learn more about the business and creative aspects of composing and publishing, and we'll also get his thoughts about the importance of inclusivity in the band room. Our conversation is broken up into two episodes, and this is part two. When you began to transition into becoming a, a, a composer, is there anything that you look back on and knowing what you know now, you think, boy, was I, was I wrong at the time or, or I had to really learn that lesson through the School of Hard Knocks? Um, not really, um, because I think, you know, composers definitely evolve over time. And so, you know, I look back at some of the music I've written, you know, or I wrote when I first really started getting published and kind of getting recognized. And obviously, I mean, now I would write it differently, you know, because I've grown a lot, I've learned a lot, and, uh, you know, my aesthetic has changed somewhat. But um, I'm not necessarily, like, sorry about what I wrote, you know, because I think it's a good snapshot of where I was developmentally at that time. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, there there are lessons that I learned and things that I learned, but, but I, I wouldn't, like, put it in the uh, lens of regret, you know, yeah. uh, because... Uh, you know, sometimes you do have to do those things to, uh, to get better. Yeah. Makes you who very, you are today. Yeah. I was very fortunate to have a lot of opportunities to, um, you know, do things that, that might not have been as good as what I'm writing now, but they got me to where I am. Yeah. So let's, let's say, I, I suspect you interact with a lot of educators who have perhaps never commissioned a piece or they've never, uh, had a piece arranged specifically for their band. Maybe they just purchased something off the shelf and they've kind of tweaked it to their needs. You know, what advice would you have for a director who is considering commissioning a, commissioning a piece for the first time to make that process easy for the band? You know, where do you see expectations sometimes get out of whack? And what information do you need to really be set up for success and provide that director with exactly what it is that they're looking for? Well, um, to me, or at least for me, and of course, keeping in mind that I can't speak for all composers and situations, but the commissioning process uh, for me and my clients is pretty simple. Um, you know, the first thing you need to do, and to me, the biggest thing is going to be the timeline. Um, you need to have a good idea of when you need the work. And then the, the first question to the composer should be, can you fit this into your schedule? Um, because, you know, I, again, for me, I do not like getting things to people late. Um, I, I pretty much meet every single deadline I've ever been given. Um, so to me, that's always first secondary and very close to that, of course, is going to be budget because different composers will have different price points and different band programs will have different situations in what they can fund and what they cannot fund. So I, I, you know, the, to me, the first discussions don't even need to be artistic. They need to be very practical. Like, you know, can we get this in the time we need it? And can we afford this? Because, you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you didn't discuss that and then you do a commission and then suddenly, you know, you owe thousands of dollars and then the composer doesn't get paid. And you know, in some cases it becomes a legal thing. 
Um, I have I have been very fortunate in my career where that has never been the case, but that's also because I've I've got a pretty good business savvy, and I never let a director not talk about those things. I mean, I steer the conversation to where like these are the first things we talk about to make sure that this you know this needs to go any further than the first conversation. So beyond that, you know, if if the timeline and the budget is agreeable. The next thing I think that is important to discuss is the function of the piece that is intended to be written. You know, is it for a celebration? Is it for a memorial? Is it for just because? Is it for a special occasion like a, um, an honors performance or a convention performance? You know, is it for the opening of a new building? Is it for the birth of a band director's child? Like, you know, these are all important information. Um, and secondly, you know, does the director have any special requests? You know, I want this style. I want this type of instrumentation. I want to feature this soloist. Um, all of this information is really important. Um, now, having said that, directors need to be ready for, like, the counter procedure of the com composer in which we start giving our input and our creative ideas. Um, for me, I'm always looking to challenge myself and to do things that I haven't done before, even if it's just a little different. Like, I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about reinventing the wheel. But, you know, I don't want to rewrite something I've already written. You know, I, I want to explore new things. So I think sometimes one of the worst things a director can do is be like, oh, write us something like blah, you know, or, you know, something like Adrenaline Engines or something like Darkland's March. Um, because I'm just, you know, for me, I've already written those. I'm ready to move, I'm ready to move on, you know? And uh, I, plus, you know, if you set up that expectation of, you know, I want something like this, I really think you're going to not get the best piece because I think the more freedom you give a composer, the more creative they're going to be and the more unusual and special and, you know, unique the work you're going to get. A couple of really good examples that I'll give from my own catalog where I was just kind of given free reign. Um, there's a few pieces from the past couple of years that I'm exceptionally proud of because I was just given kind of carte blanche to do what I wanted to. Um, the first was a piece I wrote for the uh, National Lesbian Gay Band Association, uh, which has since changed its name to the, um, the Freedom Bands uh, Association. And that's probably not exactly right, but it's something like that. I do not have it in front of me at the moment. Um, but they asked me to write a piece commemorating the 1969 Stonewall riots. Um, and, but they didn't tell me like how to write. They're just like, write something about this. And I can say without reservation, it is by far the most creative thing and unusual thing I've written. Uh, because it incorporates elements of pop music from that time period. You know, if you think 1969, like proto-disco, end of Motown, um, Leonard Bernstein on Broadway, um, you know, um, uh, the beatnik movement in Greenwich Village of the time, the kind of jazz influence. Um, yeah, I combined all those with a poem that I wrote, a narrative poem that kind of bridges everything, and um, a vocalist, and had to write some original pop songs that exist within the world of the piece. And it becomes this piece that tells the story of that night. Um, you know, granted, a fictionalized version of the story, but it tells the story, and it's very emotional. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm proud to say I've never heard anything else quite like it. But that's also because I was not told, oh, you have to write this symphonic thing or you have to write this you know, piece that's like a march or whatever. I was just told, write. And so that's what I did. Another one um, is a piece that's really fun called Deus Ex Machina, which combines elements of uh, symphonic 
you know, tradition, but also with elements of dubstep, heavy metal, and things like this into just this really cool kind of out there piece. Um, and again, you know, the commissioning party just said, write whatever you want to. Um, and the last one in that kind of mode I would mention is a piece called Havana Nights, um, which is based on Cuban mambo music. Um, and the group that commissioned me uh, was a group in Ohio. Because, you know, nothing says Ohio like Cuban mambo. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they just told me to write a piece. And I, you know, I think the go-to for a lot of composers and for commissioning parties is to say, we want a piece of music that represents our community, or we want a piece of music that represents our you know, ge geographic location. That's fine. But like, I'm just, I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm from Jonesboro, Arkansas. If people ask me to write a piece about Jonesboro, Arkansas, it would be very boring. <laughs> Jonesboro is a boring place. It's not a bad place. I enjoy living here. But is there anything exciting about here? You know, no. So, you know, sometimes I think you need to look beyond just, you know, the confines of your geographic locale or even, you know, the situations or whatever, and just allow composers to write music that is, is really unique and special. I think that's, that's great insight. Um, because I do think you are right. The more specific, I mean, anytime I have worked with, um, you know, any type of project like this, anytime you get more specific, I think you, you just begin putting tighter and tighter bumpers on somebody who's just, just creative. And I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, hire the best people you can find and let them do, uh, what it is that they do. And, and usually the success is far better than I could have ever imagined, um, with my very limited creativity. So I think that that's a really great insight. Um, you know, from, from the vantage point that we are able to sit in here through this podcast, I interact with a lot of directors who I think are interested. I think there's a desire among educators to make their classroom more inclusive to all of the students who are coming into their classroom. Reflecting back on your time, both as a student and as an educator, do you recall some of the things that your educator did that helped the inclusivity for you growing up? And then what are some of the things that educators can do now to ensure that their, their classroom is inclusive to all students? Well, thank you for the question. Um, and for me, looking back on my high school career, I think the biggest thing that my director did was just to treat all of us with respect um, and the same sense of expectation. You know, whether we were the first chair player or, you know, maybe still developing as musicians, the expectation that you would achieve and that you would improve was always there. And I think that alone, you know, in music and in the fine arts communicates a sense of belonging, a sense of, um, you know, importance. And the fact that the director cares, because if they didn't care, they could just let you slide. They could be like, you know what, you don't play on this, you don't do this, you could just stand to the side. Um, and to me, that you know, expectation for everybody is so communicative of respect and caring that I think that that's, you know, that's one thing that is kind of built into a lot of the fine arts as it is. Just, you know, you're important and you matter because of your function in this ensemble. So that was one thing. But I will say another thing, too, was... The director always showed an interest in us as people. You know, we were not just players uh, that just came into his classroom and did that. He would ask us how our day was going. He would uh, come to other functions, like if any of us were doing school plays or playing sports or whatever, he would show up and support us. And it was, it was small things, but, you know, that mattered. Um, and, you know, granted, uh, you know, I'm just going to be honest. Uh, it, the... Uh, I, 
looking back now, I think another way that he communicated it was with his leadership roles. Um, within our band, you know, it, it wasn't just like the boys leading. You know, there, I mean, there was a, it was always a good mix. You know, the boys were leaders, the girls were leaders. Um, the seniors could be leaders. The sophomores could be leaders. Um, it was, you know, everybody was really respected and important. So I think that's, uh, you know, key there. Now, flashing forward to kind of more modern times with what we are experiencing and kind of awakening at, as a world and as a nation right now, uh, we're learning, you know, how important representation is with diversity. Uh, I myself, uh, and, and I'm only using myself as an example because, you know, I know my experience better than I know anybody else's. Um, you know, growing up uh, through the 90s, I, I didn't have any gay role models. Like, I didn't have any, you know, role models that were exactly like me. Um, one of the things that has been very joyful for me as a composer um, in recent years has been this acceptance that I have experienced in the mainstream band world, uh, regardless of the fact that I happen to be a gay man. Um, you know, people will still invite me into their classrooms. They will still play my music. We talk. And it's just, you know, it's, it's good. But I, I think back to my experience. And had I seen somebody like myself at an earlier age, I think that would have done a lot for my self-confidence. I think it would have done a lot for helping me find my place in the world. And, and also just realizing, like, I'm okay. Being different is okay, you know. And so, you know, as we're discovering now, um, you know, in terms of gender representation, in terms of uh, race representation, in terms of age representation, and in terms of everything like that, um, I think you know, moving forward as a, as a, uh, you know, uh, band society, I think representation is going to be more important in terms of the composers you program, um, in terms of, you know, um, the artists and directors and clinicians that you invite into your classroom. Um, now don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, the ultimate element should always be, you know, the quality, but I, I think we need to realize that some of us have put up blinders um, in our profession just because like we expect band directors and clinicians to be a certain way and i i think looking past that and offering more opportunity and offering more voices to the table um, i think we're going to see an, a growth in our industry and in our art that we just haven't seen before because so many voices have been shut out so I would hope that directors would be very excited about, you know, this opportunity to get so many different perspectives and so many different life experiences. Um, and, you know, and, you know, and am I saying, you know, not to program, you know, people you usually program? Oh, no, absolutely not. But just, you know, start exploring the kind of broader and richer and more available um, you know, works and people that are out there who are, you know, dying to have their voices be heard and um i i think that you know it's just going to make all of our programs and the experience for the students just better and richer yeah great insights randall let me ask you this just to take it a, a step further um I, let's say i'm an educator and i'm going to program one of your pieces how do i connect the dots with the students in such a way that it's it's meaningful to them that there's this certain level of recognition, um, but it's not, I, I hate to use the word over the top, but it's, it's not so flashy 
that it um, detracts from. I'm, I'm having a hard time wording this question accurately, no, but I, it detracts from to where to where the emphasis is on the person and not on the issue. Yeah, that's a perfect way to phrase that well, from I, an educator's I, perspective. I, yeah, I, th- I think the biggest thing is to just introduce the person and and not introduce the issue. Um, students are smarter than we give them credit for. And I mean, they'll pick up on the fact of like, oh, you know, this this is a little bit different. Um, for instance, I, I think one of the best introductions I ever got uh, was I went to clinic a group in um, Pennsylvania. And when the director introduced me, um, I mean, he didn't make a big deal about it. But he was just like, you know, when he was giving the kids my biography, he, he just, you know, da 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 and um, and and uh, his husband's name is Steve Kazort, and his you know da da da. And so there was this acknowledgement of the uniqueness of my situation, um, but it was also not just like you know, the, it was not the focus of why I was there. You know, the, the reason I was there was to be a clinician and to work with the kids as a composer. But this other element of my personality and life experience and perspective, you know, was introduced into the conversation, but very organically and very just kind of matter of fact. Um, so I think because I think, you know, when educators do go out of their way to like make an issue of something, I, I to me, it always comes off as a little bit disingenuous. Even if they are being genuine, um, I think kids will absorb and respond to those better if it's just an organic part of the conversation. You know, this person happens to be this. Um, and uh, then, you know, you're also still allowing them to kind of gain their own perspective through that experience. Yeah. Well, I think you just articulated it better than I ever could have by saying focus on the person, not the issue. I think that just, well, you know, but I, I do want to add one thing to that because that's one of the reasons that I live so out and like, so, and I'm not shy about, you know, saying that I'm a member of the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community um, because I want to make it personal. I, I think the only way we truly change people's minds is by that personal connection. So, you know, to me, if, if you talk about a population, if you talk about a population of gender, a population of race, a population of age, whatever, it's a very abstract concept. And, you know, students don't necessarily always get, you know, that type of connection. But when you can say this person, you know, like, um, you know, then it, it becomes much more personal and much more real to the students. Um, you know, it's... Uh, I just I just think that that personal connection is always way more impactful than just being a statistic. Yeah, such great insight, Randy. So let me ask you this. This is always one of my favorite questions to ask because I get such unique reflections. Let's say that um, you and Steven are, are down at the Peabody and there's a magic elevator that takes you up to the top floor and you open the doors of the magic elevator and standing there is young Randall Standridge, who is in the second year of his career there at Harrisburg. And you've got 60 seconds to the top floor before you guys part ways. What advice would you try to pass along to young Randall to help him be more successful in those early stages of his career? It would be easy. It would be basically three things. First, I would say, learn to balance your life. You know, don't let work consume your life. Second, you know, focus on the students playing, teaching them how to practice. And uh, third, I would just uh, probably say just uh, remember that, you know, that the kids have a life outside of band. 
and that you know you need to make your their you only have them for this amount of time this many years this many minutes a day and that needs to be the highlight of their day yeah great advice randall thank you so much so for any of our listeners that want to keep up with what you're working on right now, maybe explore some of the pieces or even have a conversation with you about a, a commission idea that they have on their mind, where can people find you? Oh, well, thank you. Um, so our main website is randallstandridge.com. That is the home of, our, uh, of me personally and of our new publishing company, Randall Standridge Music. Um, I'm also pretty easy to find on social media. Um, I have my personal Facebook page, but I also have my composer's Facebook page. Either is fine. Um, you can find me um, at Randall Standridge on Instagram. Um, I also have a TikTok um, if you like goofy dancing and weird videos. Um, and then I also have a YouTube channel. Um, really, if you just go in and type in my name, you'll find these. So that would be perfectly fine. Well, I would encourage all the educators to go follow Randall on Facebook, uh, A, because the adventures of Randall and Steven are actually a lot of fun to keep up with, but B, you put out some really funny memes and just comment, just, just music educator comedy to help keep things light out there that I know a lot of people love. Well, I try to, because that, I mean, that really is an authentic part of my personality. I, I have a big sense of humor. I love to laugh. I totally get it from my father, um, who is exactly the same way, and um you know, it's just, I, I think it's just another way of being genuine. Um, I, I, one thing I have learned through my experience as a composer is to tear down that wall between the real me and, you know, the people who are playing my music. And again, going back to that personal connection, I think you just need to see the real person. And you can't do that when you're putting on a persona, putting on a, a facade or, you know, put, keeping people at bay. Um, so I, I just try to, to be me and people will either like it or they won't. And I can't control that. Yeah. A, a very wise person, um, RuPaul Charles from RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> once said, um, what other people think about you is none of your business. And so I'm just going to be me. There you go. Well, I, I can think back. I, I think I've seen some pictures of you uh, on a treadmill at your gym in a marching band uniform and just all sorts of just funny things that kind of bring light to what it is and the world, what that we do and the world that we operate in. So I appreciate your humor and everything you're doing. Well, Randall, before we wrap up, do you have any closing thoughts or final advice that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, I would, I would think the last thing is, you know, coming out of this past year with virtual learning and everything else, I think this is such a good opportunity for band programs across the world to kind of reboot um, you know, in terms of what is important, what they're focusing on, how they're structured. I mean, how often do we get this opportunity where we're coming through where everything has basically been shut down and we can start up new and say, well, now we're doing things this way. Um, this is such a golden opportunity for change and growth and improvement. And I just hope directors don't squander it. Yeah, it's going to be wonderful to see what um, evolution occurs within the music education world over the next year or two as a result of COVID. So, well, Randall, thank you so much for your time. I wish you and Stephen nothing but the best. I have enjoyed so much watching y'all's adventures and the continued growth of uh, your composing and now your publishing company. And I can't wait to see what the future holds for you guys and, and appreciate a few moments of uh, your time today to be on After Hours. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. And uh, for all of our listeners, we hope you enjoyed the, today's show. As a quick reminder, if you want to support After Hours, you can do so simply by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps us to get discovered by other music educators just like you. 
Thanks, everyone, and have a great day. That's composer, arranger, and educator Randall Standridge talking with Nick Averwater on the After Hours Director's Spotlight, which is presented by Amro Music, a family-owned company since 1921. At Amro, we work with over 600 schools in seven states to bring the joy of music to thousands of young musicians. And these partnerships make production of the After Hours podcast possible. Our director services department is ready to work with your school, too. Just email alan at amromusic.com or seth at amromusic.com. The After Hours podcast is produced by Nick Averwater, Emily McGee, and Joel Hurd in Memphis, Tennessee. You can hear many more conversations with music educators at amromusic.com slash afterhours. Hey, if you enjoyed today's episode, here are two easy and fast ways you can support the After Hours show. First, your five-star review means a lot as it helps to boost us in the podcast rankings so that other music educators just like you can find us. Second, if you thought of someone that would enjoy this week's content and episode, hey, please share it with them so that they too can be a part of the After Hours community. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next week.